And whenever, whenever I see students in my classes that are, you know, really worried about the lack of uh, pace of change uh, among higher education institutions, I just tell them to look back historically. And you, then you can see the incredible trajectory, the amount of changes that have happened over time and um, the role that they will play oftentimes as leaders in higher education moving forward to make some of the key decisions. Hello, welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short-term and in the years to come are immense, and yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. And welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education. And we have the opportunity to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I'm joined for this episode by one of higher ed's foremost experts on organizational change, governance, and leadership, as well as the changing academic workforce. Dr. Adriana Kizar is Dean's Professor of Leadership, the Wilbur Kiefer Professor of Higher Education, and Director of the Puglia Center for Higher Education at USC. She is a prolific author and researcher, is regularly quoted in the media, and I have so been looking forward to hearing her insights about where higher education is headed and what new models we all need to be thinking about for this next era. We will include a link to her impressive bio in the show notes for our listeners. But for now, Adriana, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Now, we like to start out by asking our guests something about their professional journeys. So my question for you is, how does someone with a bachelor's degree in art history wind up as a professor, a researcher, and a national expert on all things higher education related. What drew you into the study of higher education as your profession and what sustains you? Well, let me tell you that what sustains me is the idea of improving higher education. And I, my background in history is a great um, help to me in that one of uh, my passions has been to look at and study the evolution of higher education to see the ways that at times it has not always been meeting the challenges um, as it could or should, um, but that it's also risen to the challenge over time to change. And whenever, whenever I see students in my classes that are, you know, really worried about the lack of uh, pace of change uh, among higher education institutions, I just tell them to look back historically. And you, then you can see the incredible trajectory, the amount of changes that have happened over time and um, the role that they will play oftentimes as leaders in higher education moving forward to make some of the key decisions. So I'm really excited and passionate about that, the ways that higher education can improve um, and I do think that my, my background, which it was art history, but it was very history centered, um, really got me passionate as I, as I went into higher education, looking back at its history and, and wanting to become a part of, I became a critic of, of higher education and my art history, art history background very much um, had that, that critical um, aspect to it. It was a um, uh, grounded in critical theory, and uh, very much had me exploring, you know, through the lens at that time of art, 
um, issues around race or gender and the uh, and the ways that that played out um, in terms of um, you know differences of power historically and then that has been something that I brought into my work in higher education about the sort of aspiration to, to change and improve, uh, particularly around those populations we have not well served. That's a very helpful thing to know about you as one is reading what you've written and the research that you have, that you have published. So thank you for sharing that. Now, as I mentioned, you have become the go-to expert on the changing academic workforce. And in fact, you've been studying higher ed's increasing reliance on adjunct and contingent faculty for many years now. You started the Delphi Project as a way of bringing awareness to this issue. Can you tell us something about the Delphi Project and what you have learned about changing faculty trends from the research that you've done? Thank you. Yeah, I was really i've been passionate about this issue and this goes all the way back to when i was at george washington university um, several decades ago and i noticed the trend of moving to more non-tenure track faculty members um, and i was worried also about some of the policies i saw there was at that time um, uh, the hiring of faculty was based on enrollments and classes and pass rates in classes which can get to some pretty perverse kinds of incentives for faculty members. And so as I saw both the growth in the faculty and some of the potentially disturbing policies and practices that were emerging, um, I, I started to look at this trend more broadly, you know, from my own anecdotal experiences at some institutions to looking at broadly the data. And the, of course, the changes were staggering in terms of the numbers, the fact that higher education was operating largely the same uh, in terms of its own infrastructure, even though the faculty changed so much. And I was going around talking to different groups. I would talk to administrative leaders, um, provosts, you know, what's going on with this trend? Like, why, why, is, why is nothing happening, even though there's emerging evidence of problems? So I was also seeing that there was this data emerging how student success was being impacted by the, the growth of um, adjunct faculty in particular without any support systems to help them as professionals. I started talking to um, faculty colleagues saying, why aren't disciplinary societies kind of up in arms about this? Why, why isn't there any action? I, I talked to unions, the academic unions like um, American Federation of Teachers and AAUP, like the traditional groups that have been advocates for faculty and said, why, are, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? And I kept talking to all sorts of different stakeholders and everyone said either it's someone else's responsibility or nobody can do anything about it because it's so complicated and it crosses so many different stakeholders in higher education's line. You know, uh, it's, it, you know, we need to have, you know, all sorts of different groups from board members or state policymakers disciplinary groups, there were all these different players that, um, you know, impacted this, this very complex issue. So I decided to start the Delphi project to bring together all those stakeholder groups. And I found a wonderful partner in the Association of American Colleges and Universities. They were my first partner with the project. They were, you know, um, an advocate early for faculty, and they helped craft the language with AAUP around um, tenure and academic freedom. So I knew they had been this partner for close to 100 years with faculty and seeing its relationship to a quality liberal arts education. And so with their help, I assembled everybody from um, accreditors and state policymakers down through, you know, different administrative levels, disciplinary societies, all these groups like academic unions, disciplinary societies down to um, each group of, um, you know, um, groups representing non-tenure track faculty, such as a group called the New Faculty Majority. So every um, group was represented and we um, tried to come together to say, what, what could we agree upon to work on together as a group that would address this national issue of how the changing faculty was impacting student success? And, um, 
we agreed upon two things that I have now worked on for the past decade. One was that uh, non-tenure track faculty do not get the kind of support they need to be to create a quality um, learning environment. And so I have worked, you know, over the years to create everything from how do you provide the, you know, the best professional development of these populations? How do you, you know, change policies so that they better support faculty, such as your, um, you know, your rewards for your for teaching? Do they um, actually include non-tenure track faculty members? um to um practices so looking at the the kinds of ways that um, faculty are invited to you know uh, departmental meetings or shared governance so the ways that they can get included in terms of their voice to to make the environment a better place so that was one one uh aspect that i've worked on with this group collectively over the years and the second was perhaps we don't have Perhaps the existing models themselves are problematic. Maybe the future is not adjunct faculty, and maybe the future is not tenure track faculty members, at least in their current form, which is, you know, has been heavily tied to research productivity. Um, and the ways that we can think about new kinds of faculty models. So um, and some of those have been started to come to bear over the years. We now have teaching intensive tenure positions that have taken off over the past 10 years, discipline-based education researchers, which is another model, lectures with security of employment, which are part of the University of California system. So I've been a part of a lot of these conversations about what, what other kinds of model might there be for faculty going forward in the future. Um, so I just continue on those two veins of work and um, you know, I, I have learned a lot, though, through the research I've done through that overall project, just how important it is. I mean, the most important thing I've learned is we need to deeply understand the experience and empathize with who the non-tenure track faculty are if we are to do better um, in terms of supporting them. And that's been where I've spent a lot of my effort. Well, and that's a great segue to my next question. I wanted to ask you about the Delphi Awards, uh, which you have established as a way of recognizing the good work and bringing attention to the good work that is happening across the country to better support adjunct and contingent faculty. Um, can you say something about the awards program? And in particular, and you mentioned practices, are there some specific practices uh, that you've become aware of that you can highlight for, for us, things that you've seen that that really made you step back and say, oh, that's a really good, a good practice for uh, institutions to be doing. Thank you so much for that question. Yeah, so after, um, you know, working with this large group about, you know, um, understanding the needed uh, changes, one of the things when I, what that I heard when I went out to campuses is, boy, you know, I, it would really help if I had models from institutions that are like mine of ways to do this kind of new work that you want. You want, you, you talk about um, the kinds of changes we should be making. I'd love concrete models. And I knew that there was, I, in conversations, I knew that there was exciting work happening out there. And um, I was, you know, very pleased that the Teagle Foundation decided that they wanted to support um, you know, an award that would honor the good work that's happening across the country. And so each year for the past, we're on our fourth year now, um, people have submitted their amazing work. And um, and what, what we do in the applications is um, ask um, institutions to really evaluate both how these policies and practices or programs that they've created support you know, better student success, how, you know, that's a part of the goal and how it's creating, you know, a new culture environment. And, um, and then we ask them really like to have intentional practices about this uh, in addition to the student support. So things like, are they assessing their efforts so that they can over time um, understand the impact, but also improve the work that they're doing. And so some of the interesting, um, you know, um, practices that have come out of the award. Um, for example, at Harper College, they have created a new evaluation system. And I think um, that's one of the areas that 
that gets overlooked is the over-reliance for non-tenure track faculty on, on say, um, just student evaluations. And so faculty members are terrified to experiment or to try anything new because one semester of uh, bad student evaluations and they'll be fired. You know, they, they're used very punitively. And so an institution that recognized the need to rethink evaluation to provide many more options in terms of you know peer observations and portfolios and um, creating a much more robust evaluation system um, and then of course tying that to professional development was a you know a really strong good practice that we wanted to be able to you know lift up and support similarly um, Louisiana State uh, University they had um, created a really interesting uh, way to include non-tenure track faculty members in a professional development and intensive efforts that were rethinking um, curricular and pedagogical innovations on campus. So really deeply engaging them in the work of not only being trained personally, but then activating, you know, new writing programs and so forth across the campus, the ways to really bring in, um, you know, faculty members. And uh, an, another very kind of related one is that the um, University of North Carolina at Charlotte, they, the use of um, uh, learning communities on, on their campus. And then we've had uh, campuses that have had really expansive, so sometimes it wasn't like a single deep practice or policy, but just, you know, across the board, um, you know, have had, you know, uh, you know, a set of policies or practices that really support non-tenure track faculty members. So this would fall more in line with um, Dominguez Hills, uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills, that, you know, they have done everything from recommending changes in compensation to involvement in shared governance to, um, you know, sabbatical leaves for non-tenure track faculty. So they were more looking at a whole, you know, assortment of um, kinds of changes in policies and practices. Similarly, um, Penn State, where they came up with, um, you know, uh, deep involvement with the faculty and shared governance, changing up sort of their promotion schemes so everyone's on, you know, a similar kind of promotion and advancement track. Um, change compensation, change titles. So, uh, so, we've, so we've kind of uh, got, you know, tried to identify those who are thinking very broadly about an inter interconnected assortment um, of uh, practices. Um, and I would say Baypath University is an institution that very much was similar in terms of uh, that alignment of having, doing many wonderful things all at the same time, holding that, um, and um, so we've tried to, 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 to reward those who are thinking, you know, across the institution and then deep, deep, deep changes that can serve as model of one area, just if I want to dig deep into evaluation or professional development. So, um, but we've just been excited about how many people are doing these, uh, this good work and can serve as models for others. Well, thank you for the shout out. We were very excited at Bay Path to be one of your um, runner up I believe we were a runner-up awardee, so, but it was very exciting because of the, the company that uh, we, were, we were with in terms of other, other awardees. So for people that want to know more and uh, to see more specific examples, you have this all available on your website, is that correct? Yes, so we have write-ups, case study write-ups of each of the uh, winners. Um, we have... Um, information about just it, it, those interested in applying for the award as well or understanding more about the, the background of the award and um, you know it's just you know it's exciting to see um, the support for this and um, I look forward for many more years of rewarding people for the good work they're doing in this area. That's terrific yeah it, it's uh, we can't ever do enough I don't think to um, to recognize and support those that are in the classroom, full-time or, or adjunct. So do you have any sense how the pandemic is impacting the academic uh, workforce and the trends that you've been tracking? 
Yeah, this is this has been a really tough year for um, non-tenure track faculty members. Uh, the adjuncts, there was a tremendous layoff. I, I've, I've talked to several journalists who had pulled the information from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, you know, while we weren't one of the industries that had the highest, you know, some of the hospitality and retail had some of the largest layoff, we were in the mid range of layoffs in, in terms of industries. And the large majority of that were um, adjunct faculty, and then it was, you know, groundskeeping staff, housekeeping staff the, um, that um, are often employed, um, you know, uh, on a, a part-time basis. So it was our, it was our, you know, largely our part-time workforce that took an incredible hit this last year, or even full-time that were contingent. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, that has been, you know, it's been, I think it's, you know, it's been really hard. It's particularly challenging in higher education because the way that we employ uh, faculty members often in the way they're let go of makes them ineligible for unemployment, which is a complicating factor that left them in, in worse uh, place than some other industries. So, um, you know, I've been trying to really work with campuses so that the ways that they even lay people off don't infringe on people's ability to get unemployment. Um, I think the only upside that, you know, I saw in terms of the academic workforce is um, there was a lot more professional development among uh, those non-tenure track faculty members who were, who did remain employed had opportunities for support that they sometimes didn't have in the past because of things moving to online because of the recognition that everybody's got to be learning right now as we move to mm -hmm. zoom formats and new ways of doing things um and that's my hope is that if we can take one thing i mean i you know out of the pandemic is the kind of broader access and involvement um, to professional development um, that did happen during that time indeed if we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning and the future is now. The Baypath University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Baypath University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. switch gears here. Uh, you are the co-author of a very important 2018 report entitled Speaking Truth and Acting with Integrity, Confronting Challenges of Campus Racial Climate, in which you explore what led to the University of Missouri's 2015-2016 racial crisis and how the institution has since responded. 
offering recommendations to college and universities leaders who strive to create and maintain a positive racial climate on campus. Can you tell us some of the key takeaways from your research and specifically, what did you learn that is informative for other campus leaders who are in the midst of building their own capacity to support DEI work? Now, and then the final question is the report was issued three years ago. So I'm curious if you've seen any changes uh, since then. So let me say thank you for this question because af after this last year where um, racial justice and injustice issues have become you know, very apparent um, as people were home during the pandemic and the social movements um, captured the imagination of people across the country, including higher education leaders and, and people really are. So one thing that I've seen that's changed is that there is now on most campuses um, a real re recommitting to um, how what they build their capacity for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in fact, I've been doing this study on shared equity leadership um, with the American Council on Education, which we did the original study with, based on you know coming out of this other study and really seeing that we 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 need to help. Um, make equity the work of everyone on campus and not have it continue to be in an office of diversity, equity, inclusion. And, and we need culture change on these issues. And there is um, one of the things that we saw doing this study, we were studying eight campuses that really have made diversity, equity, inclusion, everyone's work on campus and trying to see how they did that. Um, when we were interviewing um, the faculty, staff and leaders on those campuses, they they talked about how um, very much so now they have colleagues who they never, who, who never seem to have an interest in this, who, who are open now and thinking about this now. So it's a really important time for um, campuses to, to move when there's an opportunity, there's a real opportunity at this time. I think um, what, we learned out of that earlier report was truly the danger of lacking capacity in this area of how many of us are how many of our campuses are vulnerable because they haven't been thinking on an ongoing basis about how is this um, not only a part of our mission and priorities but what do we do to actually because most campuses will say we have a commitment to diversity equity inclusion but what are they actually doing in terms of looking at what kind of professional development do we regularly do? What, how, how do we hold people accountable? Is it a part of our annual evaluations every year? You know, like the myriad kinds of things that um, show um, that it is an, a lived priority and helping build campuses capacity around this work. So we offer up in the report a capacity building framework that we very much hope um, people will look at and, and think about as a framework to do that capacity building work. Um, we also discovered when campuses are left vulnerable and they don't have the capacity, the kind of, um, you know, tinderbox that it creates when there, are, there will, you know, continue to be campuses being Press, particularly by their students about are they doing enough on this work and the the kinds of when the campus doesn't have the capacity to deal with this the kinds of you know emotions that you know um, destructive emotions that can emerge and we talk a lot about the anger um, of students faculty and staff on campus and these are um, those that you know are racialized minorities, but others like it creates an anger, it creates a trauma, it creates um, a whole range of very negative emotions that um, can be remain trapped on a campus and destroy its culture. And so we were really capturing the depth of what that looks like and how it can paralyze um, a campus. And uh, and the worry that so what we what we also saw is the kind of routinized response that campuses have like let's put together a group and let's create a task force and really how harmful our approaches are to this work, uh, especially 
given the level of trauma, which led us to then the framework that we came up with, which was a collective trauma um, framework for leading when you have allowed that kind of um, dysfunction to take over the campus when you don't deal well with um, racial um, injustices and you have an incident that really uh, paralyzes the campus. So um, we talk about three things that we in higher education are not particularly good at. Um, and one of them is active listening, uh, which again, everybody thinks they do this, but it is, uh, we are responders. We are intellectual environments. We have to debate something rather than truly listening and hearing um, what uh, another group is saying about their experience. Um, the second is speaking um, uh, from the heart. And, you know, this whole, uh, you know, issue of being vulnerable and, you know, the first thing that we should say when, when something like this happens are, you know, apologizing and, and talking about how terrible it is and acknowledging all these emotions that I just talked about. I understand that people are angry. They have a right to be angry, but we're, we're not an organization that's typically good at dealing with emotions and speaking from the heart really engages those emotions and allows a space um, for people to heal, just like the active listening does. And then the third is acting with, and it's the idea that sometimes when a crisis happens, it's like leaders swoop in and try to make all these decisions. And that's absolutely the opposite of what you need to be doing, which is instead actually working with groups students, staff, you know, faculty, um, community members, um, you know, working with them instead of at them to, to try to find ways forward. And, 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 and instead of, um, you know, centralizing decision-making power, really actually at that time, growing your shared governance structures and um, decision-making structures. So that was the framework that we offered that is, you know, very different from the kind of leadership we often see when a crisis occurs on campus. As you are aware, the AAUP has been conducting a review of academic governance practices and has recently issued a report suggesting that many institutions are using the pandemic and the accompanying financial distress to erode faculty rights. In fact, the report calls this uh, present uh, time a watershed moment for shared governance and concludes by stating that the COVID-19 pandemic has presented the most serious challenges to academic governance in the last 50 years. That's quite a statement. So I'm curious, uh, Adriana, as a national expert on change, governance, and leadership in higher education, what's your take on this? Yeah, so the National Academies of Sciences have actually asked me to do a little exploration of this, in particular around gender equity issues during this time period, because women have been particularly hit hard, women faculty, um, and they were concerned about this because of the ability of women to, to progress, to you know, be promoted when during the pandemic, many of them had extra childcare responsibilities, family care responsibilities. You know, as a society, we like to think we've evolved, but women are still doing the majority of the work when it comes to caretaking, and they were very, very hit during the pandemic. And it's another issue that I, I really hope that we, um, as an academy, think you know think very hard about because you know, those, those issues continue to plague women outside of the pandemic, but it just became very heightened and very aware of what kind of role they had. And so I did, I explored um, data from uh, different sources that I could find. Um, AAUP actually just had a report that came out this week that I commented on um, with some of their further data um, on violations of, of shared governance during this time. But I looked at other sources, um, COACH, um, which is this uh, collaborative academic um, consortium on, on higher ed, they, they collect data on, on this issue. So I got all the data sources I could. And um, what I saw was, and, and of course, there were a lot of journalistic accounts in the Chronicle Inside Higher Education, in addition to some of the, the uh, 
you know, reports that I could find. Um, and yes, uh, this last year, there was a lot of overreach by various institutions. I, I, um, but the, actually the latest AUP data this week said, you know, in addition to sort of the 20% of faculty members reporting overreach, there was also um, a smaller percentage, but did say that um, leaders came to them more than in the past. Um, so I, we had kind of a split. We had institutions that um, went even more extreme with the trends that have already been happening the last 30, 40 years. So also just to emphasize the last 30 or 40 years, faculty have been losing their governance rights. They've been eroding, eroding, eroding. So we've been in a, in a long time decline of um, shared governance. And then some, you know, 20, looks like about 25% of the administrators took it even far, use this as an opportunity to get farther. I think about another 50% just stayed kind of doing what they were doing. But we had a small percentage that said, oh my God, you know, I don't really know what to do in this changed environment. Maybe I need to actually seek out my faculty support more just to say, how, how do we as an administration support you in your Zoom classroom? I don't know, like I've never done this before. So they actually leaned in more. And I was able to find some really positive examples like the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where, um, and I wrote up for this National Academy's report, a case study, a research study that had been done of them, of how they sought out um, much more help from across campus and were able to create uh, a really good environment for, you know, for students, for faculty and staff during the pandemic by really leaning into and um, getting the expertise from the ground to support their decision-making. So I think we saw, um, you know, two kind of like two extremes uh, happening and then everybody else kind of staying in the middle, which was not seeking enough faculty advice. I think, you know, that the good examples really point to us how, when we do quality share governance, we can improve the work that we're doing. And we just, you know, we need, I think leaders and administrators to trust that more. I mean, we showed in the pandemic, those who did it were able to create a better environment um, for everyone. So on that point, uh, and given the pressure points that so many institutions are experiencing, how should we be thinking about shared governance in the years ahead? So you've, you've sort of started to go there in your uh, comments on my last question, but are there some new models that uh, you think are promising that need to be explored? And partic in particular, is tenure still a viable option, do you think? So um, I'll start with the last and move, move backward. But so yes, I think tenure can be a viable option. Um, it's it just never been, modified in any significance. If you think about it, the enterprise, higher education enterprise has changed vastly since tenure was created. The number of institutions, the type of work, most institutions are focused on teaching, not research. But when we started ten, you know, the tenure as a form, it, research was a, was a relatively dominant practice, although we had many institutions that were liberal arts colleges at the time where, teaching was the predominant um, work. But you know, it was at the time of the rising research university in our country, and there was just this emphasis on building up the idea of research. But um, we just need tenure to move along with the times. You know? So giving tenure for different sorts of practices, you know, for doing different kinds of work, but also people didn't live as long and people, you know, when you, you know, with the, you, people retired at a different age. So now when you're getting tenure, it used to be you're giving tenure to somebody for maybe 25, 30 years. Now you might be giving tenure to somebody for 60 years. And so it's a very different compact. And I think we need to think about termed tenure. Like you have it for 30 years or something like the institutions can't, um, sometimes as we think about obligations, have the, you know, the kind of the, the lengthy obligation. So it, it really was created in a different point in time. And we need to rethink it with what our 
you know, the realities are of today. Um, so institutions that are meaningful have to be flexible and they have to change, you know. Um, and so, but, you know, it's importance in supporting academic freedom in supporting, um, you know, longevity are important yet, you know, I've seen other models of doing that long term contracts where you get increasingly long, you know, initially starting on three, three to five year contracts where you move to 10 year contracts even or seven year contracts over time can be other similar, you know, work models that aren't quite tenure but operate in a more similar way still you know, I feel like, you know, your academic freedom is pretty good if like an administrator has to sit around for 10 years to think about how they're going to get rid of you at the, <laughs> at the end of that. And administrators are usually turning over every seven years. So they probably aren't going to be there for that time period when they could not, you know, renew your contract. So I, I feel like there are really important ways you can still protect um, academic freedom outside of a tenure um, profile. Um, so, so there's, lots of space there i think that um for for different kinds of work and changes when it comes to um faculty and as i said you have really been exploring these new faculty models quite a bit as we think about shared governance um i think that uh there are you know still models of institutions that we can look at and the i mentioned the coach project they have a really nice set of indicators in the research that they do around shared governance and campuses can look at how their shared governance is operating it's i think it's um it's helpful to sometimes get data to drive your efforts and even if people do their own surveys if they can just get the items from there to kind of think about how is shared governance working on our campus i think we need campuses to do more exploration around their decision making structures we do so much collection of data on so many other things um but we don't often look at how how well are we doing our decision making structures and i think we can be much more data and evidence based um, in the ways we do that and so i really recommend for campuses to be doing more to understand their own shared governance processes um, which i i think we we then they would recognize how they're not working as well as they think and be able to make some changes and you know and and coach does some of their reports highlight some of the model campuses so i really would recommend some of their work to identify some of the campuses that are doing really good work around shared governance but i think um we may be uh, as a as a, a an enterprise very far over um where you know it, it's hard for me to see campus leaders um being able to shift power in the ways that needs to happen because of so many years of centralizing power and i do think um the trend has been towards unionizing campuses and we may continue to see that trend it has there's been an uptake in in unionizing and if there is not a rebalancing of power i foresee probably that will be where will be a, a collective bargaining table to try to redress the lack of shared governance. I'm curious if you have a, um, a perspective on what effective higher ed leadership looks like in this new era, and particularly for those that are on the, um, the starting out uh, side yeah. of their profession. Uh, how might they best prepare, particularly if they see themselves wanting to become a dean or a provost or a president someday? So I think um, a couple of tools that you know I have uh, been working to develop, I think, would be really helpful. So I had a recent report um, that came out on designing for equity in higher education and it's free and available on our the Polius website. And it really speaks to a way that leaders can design everything from programs, practices, policies to like, how do you rethink your campus, but intentionally have um, an equitable mindset in doing that? I think we have so many um you know due to kind of the imbalance of power I, I don't think groups are talking to each other we don't have the shared understandings and it's a way that even outside of a shared governance structure one can um 
think about designing things in ways that would create more equity in, you know, as a leader, if I'm a leader, how do I do things in ways that have equity as an underlying ethic or underpinning and be more certain that the work that I do will not have negative implications. Um, I think that's just really important at this point in time where our structures, you know, have been pointed out to, to not to reproduce inequality. And, um, and, you know, I know that the new generation of leaders don't want to do that unless you challenge the current decision making structures. That's what you're going to do. We are set up to replicate inequality and unless we unless we intentionally sit outside that framework we cannot break it the second is um, a report that i i had mentioned that we've been doing on shared equity leadership and i think thinking about yourself as a leader as a part of a group and i think shared leadership is um, incredibly important um, in higher education hasn't gotten enough attention and so this report really talks about how do you work collectively with others on changes and how do you in particular advance issues around diversity equity and inclusion and so i uh, it talks to a lot about some of the qualities you brought up earlier you know the importance of vulnerability or humility or sitting with discomfort and it talks about a lot of things that have to that we may not associate with leadership but that really are very very important to leadership and so thinking about you know the report really talks about the um, the important skill set needed to work in a shared fashion, but the kinds of um, values and you know skill sets that um, are different from maybe your your common curriculum around leadership that you don't see in a leadership textbook, but but I you know hopefully we will in the future. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of what underscored that report though was the importance of a, a personal uh, journey. Um, towards transformation. And um, I think that, uh, you know, so often we don't talk about the, the individual kinds of ways that we need to, you know, develop our own critical consciousness of issues to be good leaders. The, the, the you know, the, the deep personal work that often needs gone in self-reflection. And I would say the ways that they're engaging that kind of work themselves individually. Um, and then, you know, uh, often I will say uh, people or people tell me that the book that I wrote on how colleges change has been really instrumental to them as as leaders, just being able to think about, you know, most people go into leadership wanting to make changes and have a um, often don't have a sophisticated understanding about how to do that. So learning some of this, some of the concepts and skill sets about um, change and being able to um, do that effectively. I think, um, you know, people have said it's a very powerful um, way for them to engage that. So I think I would, I would start with those kind of three as some kind of pivotal ways to, to build up skill sets um, to be a leader in this era in particular. I think all of these are really um, leadership skills that I've been working on recently are really set within the how the times have changed so much right now. So Adriana, we have a final question. We've come to the end of our time and it's a signature question that we ask of every guest who comes on the podcast. So the question is especially timely right now as we're looking to the end of the pandemic. So as you look to the future, what do you think needs to be on the radar of college and university leaders right now? What issues or concerns do we all need to be paying attention to and why? So it's a really important question. I think the first thing I would say is trauma. I think that we're going to have students, staff, faculty, and administrators returning to campus um, exhausted and angry and feeling all sorts of incredible uh, emotions, but also just traumatized after pandemic and the issues of racial injustice, the continued um, murder of, of black men and women. And I, I just, I, people are going to come back um, with all of that. 
And so I think that leaders need to um, acknowledge the and, and really become better at understanding how to process trauma to be able to bring in the kind of expertise and staff to support and train individuals who can um, see this in their colleagues, in the students, and help them identify the, the resources they need. And so we all need to extend our skills to be able to better see this and identify it. It is something, um, the mental health, um, the rise in mental health issues has, has been significant. You can read it in study after study. And so we, we as a society and we as, you know, in plain our place in society are going to have to think about what that looks like. Um, I think the second thing is um, we need to be better in these next couple of years of celebrating and recognizing and acknowledging um, the efforts of um, faculty, staff, our student workers on campus, um, and similarly of administrators. So faculty and staff acknowledging just how difficult some of the decisions have been that administrators had to make. Um, so we need to come together and think about how do we as communities do a better job of caring for each other in those ways by you know, celebrating some of the good things that do happen, acknowledging the pain and, and recognizing you know, the important small wins that we will have moving forward. Um, as just a way to kind of, you know, particularly to, to have something positive and to have some hope and to bring more of that to our, our spaces. And um, uh, my, my colleague and I, Susan Elrod, wrote this article for Change Magazine about a year ago on the, that we are not a naturally, uh, as organizations go, we, we have this kind of academic culture, which sort of uh, doesn't always lead us open to um, the kind of celebration of other people and, and recognition in, in, an, in a very unusual way. You're just expected to sort of like have this excellence versus um, to really call people out and recognize them and, and acknowledge them. So I'm hoping that that is something that we really take on and build into our culture. We're going to really need it in the next five years ahead. Lisa Morsolson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, which is a production of CELLUP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash CELLUP for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education monthly webinar series. I am very excited about our next episode, which will be our final one of season two. I have the privilege to talk with a highly innovative and wise leader, Scott Wyatt, who serves as president of Southern Utah University, affectionately known as SUU. You may have heard about Wyatt recently. He and his team have just launched the $9,000 bachelor's degree. What many people don't know is that this is one of a steady stream of innovations that Wyatt has led during his time at SUU. During our wide ranging conversation, we talk about innovation, why it's so hard to do and sustain in higher education, and what he thinks we all need to be doing right now to remain relevant and competitive. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.